So before we start this episode, I just wanted to let you know about the retreat I'm going to teach very shortly, well in October, at Purple Valley Yoga in Goa, alongside my very special guest, Edwin Bryant. So it's a two weeks retreat, both weeks there'll be a Mysore class in the morning, every morning, and the first week I'll be there teaching asana workshops in the afternoons, the second week Edwin will take the reins for his knowledge and philosophy, including going through his well-known book on the yoga sutras in person. Further than that, Purple Valley Yoga Goa is generally great. A lovely shala, great food, wonderful staff, and set on a beautiful grounds with a pool. So I'm sure you're going to have a great time. See www.keyonyoga for uh, details or go to yogagoa.com as well. I hope to see you there. So today's guest on the Keyon Yoga podcast is Nikki Doan. Uh, Nikki has a yoga studio in Maui on the North Shore called Maya Yoga Studio. And she has been practicing since 1988. Uh, first trip to Mysore is 1991. So um, welcome, Nikki. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, Thank you for having to speak me. To you. Yeah, especially at this time. So we're going to talk a little bit about Maui and the devastation there mm-hmm. in the later part of the podcast. But first of all, before that, um, on the happier topic, uh, let's talk about your introduction to uh, yoga, Nikki. Um, how did you get into it? And then how did you get into Ashtanga? Because I know you've studied many types of yoga, not just Ashtanga. I know. Uh, Well, to be honest with you, I was kind of a hippie kid. I was really into a band called The Grateful Dead, and uh, (laughs) which probably tells you a lot about me right there. But um, that's the first place I ever saw people doing yoga. My, uh, I grew up living overseas, actually. My dad worked for the Foreign Service, so I was born overseas and spent most of my childhood living in Europe and Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And so fairly conservative, right? My dad worked for the government. So when we, when I got to high school, my mom was very insistent that we live in the U S she wanted me to have some sense of American culture before I went to college. So when I started high school, uh, yeah, little did she know. Uh, but, uh, uh, one of my students or not one of my students, one of the kids in my journalism class one day handed me, I was 15 years old. He handed me a cassette tape of the grateful dead And I had never heard of them. And I listened to it and it blew my mind. I was like, whoa. And then he said, you should come to a concert. They're going to be in Richmond. This was outside of Washington, D.C. And I said, "Okay." And I went and again, mind blown. And that's the first place I ever saw people practicing yoga. I didn't know what yoga was. It wasn't a common thing. This was yes. Yes. In the parking lot. There was always like a scene, you know, because often they would. Uh, stay in a city for a few days. And so people would literally camp. It would be like this traveling circus of a scene. And there were all these hippies. Also vegetarianism. I had never heard of vegetarianism. And I was like, oh, what is this? I ended up becoming a vegetarian at 18. Still am. Uh, But yeah, I saw people practicing yoga. And so I just equated yoga and vegetarianism with being a hippie and the Grateful Dead, which I thought all of that was super cool. And then when I went to university, which was in Western Massachusetts at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, they um, they offered yoga for gym credit and you needed three gym credits to graduate. And it was kind of amazing. They actually had three different kinds of yoga. They had Hatha yoga, Kundalini yoga and Iyengar yoga. And I ended up starting with the Hatha yoga and um I'll never forget. I was not a morning person at all. 
And I had signed up for the class. It was the second semester. So it was January. It was very cold in Massachusetts. And I got my schedule and it said that the yoga class started at eight o'clock in the morning. And I remember being like, what? No, I am not getting up at eight o'clock. And then I was like, well, I really should try it. And then, of course, I look in the gym where it was, was like all the way across the campus. And I remember having to set my alarm and thinking, you know, this better be good. And uh, I got up and I had to put all my coats on, trudge all the way across the campus. It was snowing. And I got to the class. And again, mind blown. I, I, I didn't even know what to expect. But the, the metaphor that I've always used for that experience is that it felt like I was putting on very um, well-worn shoes or boots, you know, mm. that were broken in perfectly to me. I, I had never stepped into something that felt so familiar that I had mm. never done before. And it, it blew my mind. And I remember leaving the class, it was only an hour, leaving the class. And I had some friends living in a dorm nearby. And I went and like knocked on their doors, like nine o'clock in the morning and woke them up. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I have to tell you about this yoga class. It was incredible. They're like, yeah, can you come back in a couple hours? And I was like, yeah, okay. Um, but I didn't miss a class the whole semester. And yeah, that was it. And then I ended up taking uh, a Kundalini yoga class the next semester, which was at the time a little too, um, I'll say religious or dogmatic for me at the time. I was 19 years old. The people were really nice. I loved the vibe, but it was like a little bit too much. And then um, I ended up taking an Iyengar yoga class near the end of university. And the teacher wasn't teaching Iyengar yoga, but had recently met Tim Miller, who, you know, is a very <laughs> old school Ashtanga teacher. And instead, he taught the entire primary series through the semester. And I, of course, was like, what is this? This is amazing. And then I ended up having an opportunity after I graduated from university, which I thought I was going to Russia. I was going to be a Russian translator. I studied because I lived in Moscow when I was 13, 14 years old. I thought I was moving to Russia. That's what I had studied in university and the Berlin Wall had just come down a couple of years before. It was 1991. There were a lot of job opportunities. And um I even went down to Washington, D.C. to the State Department and got tested and my proficiency was high enough. So I applied for several jobs, only they weren't going to be ready for a few months. So my dad was like, well, just sit tight. And I was like, OK, I'm going to go traveling. And I ended up traveling to the West Coast, went to ended up in Encinitas, California, Tim Miller's studio. He didn't even have his own studio then. It was called the North Shore Yoga Center in Solana Beach. And, um, anyway, I, I stayed there for a couple of months and I, I like cleaned the studio in exchange for being able to take classes. I was house sitting for people, dog sitting, you know, just trying to make it work. And then I had an opportunity to go to Mysore. Someone offered me an opportunity and I was like, okay. And I remember calling my parents and like saying, uh, by the way, I'm going to India in a week. And they were like, what? No, you can't. You're these jobs. And I was like, well, they have phones, you know, you can call them. And that was literally back in the day when to make an international call to India, you had to book a call like with an international operator. And you know, it was not easy to get in touch, but I was like, here's the name of the hotel. And uh, I remember my, my mom being like, well, okay, well, did you get all your shots? And I was like, what? 
No, I didn't get any shots. I ended up getting like Giardia on that trip. I was sick for four months, but uh, it was a life-changing experience. And I remember calling my dad after being there maybe two months. And I said, I'm not taking any of those jobs. Like I'm not going to Russia. My parents were like, oh, we sent you to university for what? You know, and then of course, as the years have gone by, clearly I've been able to make my, you know, living and life be mm. yoga and yeah, so they accepted it, but it, it, they were not happy. They were not happy at all. So, but it, you know, that, that was an incredible time to be in my sorts. It was such a small scene. I showed up and there, I think there were maybe 12 or 13 students there total, you know, and it was in the old studio in Lakshmi Puram. And um, there were eight people at a time in the studio. So when I look back on that now, it was, it was really precious time. And mm. it was also when like the, the practice was very strong. There was, um, yeah, no mixing, no substituting, <laughs> no modifications, a lot of injuries. Luckily, not to me, but yeah. Anyway. How did you find that early time? I'm always intrigued about different people's opinions of the time with Patabi Joyce because, you know, it's a, yeah. like, you know, everyone knows the stuff around Patabi Joyce now, blah, blah, blah. Um, but on the other hand, many people, you know, have to say, had a really, you know, super positive experience with Patabi Joyce. And many people think that, you know, still think of him as Guru and Guruji and, and uh, like a healer, like a, with a magic touch. What, what, you know, what was your experience there? Uh know that I would say he had like a magic touch, but I, I feel very grateful for the time that I had with him. And I definitely do still think of him as Gurji. Um, mm. I'll never forget when I, when I went there right before we left, Tim had said to me, you know, cause he was like, do you know the entire primary series? And I was like, uh, well, not really. And I had my little, you know, cheat sheet that I had written everything down. He said, well, you're not going to be able to use that when you go there. And I remember being like, oh, my God, what am I going to do it? Literally on the airplane all the way to India, I like memorized the sequence. And everybody had said, you know, you're going to go in on the first day. This is before there were any lead classes. And you're going to start practicing. And at a certain point, they're going to tell you to stop. And then you stop and that's where you'll end. And the next day you'll come back and, you know, pick it up from there and you'll get like one pose or whatever it was. And I said, okay. And so... Also, I had never seen Patabi Joyce in person. I had only seen the photographs. And I don't know if you're familiar with that very famous Samas Dittahi uh, photograph of him. Mm. You know, it's mm -hmm. like a sepia tone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, mm. I, I thought he was a very tall man. I had no <laughs> idea. So I have his I'm address. I'm like 20 years old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I get to the hotel. We're staying at the Hotel Metropole. And I take a rickshaw down to Lakshmi Puram and I get to the, and it's a house, you know, and I walk up and I'm like, okay. And I knock on the door and uh, the door opens and it's Patabi Joyce, but I don't realize that. And I, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to look up and I look down, I was taller than him and I'm not particularly tall. I'm like five, five. And I said, uh, I'm looking for Patabi Joyce. And he said, I'm Patabi Joyce. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm here to practice. He said, yeah, okay, you come in. And I remember we walked in through his house. He had been like doing laundry or something. And we went upstairs. He had this little office upstairs. And uh, I remember he had like this oil cloth on the desk and he lifted it up and there was a little key underneath and he took it out and he unlocked his desk drawer and he had this enormous ledger book 
And he opened it up and he said, you write name, mother's name, uh, something else silly. And, you know, it was like, and I think the cost was like $200 a month plus a $60 registration fee, you know, and, and he was always very good with the money, man. You never like, <laughs> he'd be like, tomorrow you go bank. It's been one month. Uh, but anyway, I was like, okay. And then he said, uh, so I signed up and, and he said, okay, you come tomorrow. And I said, uh, okay, what time? And he said, six o'clock. And I remember being like, oh God, really six? Okay, okay, I'll come at six o'clock. So the next morning, it was November. And uh, it, so it was dark in the morning. And, but there was the there was a few rickshaws that would always hang out outside of the uh, of the Metropole. So I get in the rickshaw and I go to class and, and I go in. And the way the room was set up, it was two rows of four and we were all facing the same direction. So he pointed, I had a corner spot and he said, go, you know, go there. And Sherat had just started assisting him like within the last year. We're about the same age. I'm like maybe a year older than him. Anyway, so I started practicing, you know, and I was so nervous because again, I was like, let me remember the sequence of remembering. And I got to um, around Janushir Shasana. And all of a sudden I started hearing talking behind me and it was Sherat but he wasn't speaking English. He was speaking Kannada and he was talking to Gurji. And you know how, even if you don't know what they're saying, you kind of can get a vibe of what they're saying. And he's responding. And in my head, I'm hearing Sharat say, okay, she, she's done. She needs to stop. And Patabi Joyce, no, she's doing fine. She's going to keep going. And he's like, no, she should stop. And Gurji's like, no, like you're out. And I just kept going. They let me do the entire primary series on the first day which I didn't huh. realize was very unusual. Hmm. So I did the whole primary series and then the dropbacks and the, you know, Viprita Chakrasana and the backbends. I could do all of that. I was 22. So hmm. I just turned 22. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it definitely helps. Supple. I remember Guruji was like, oh, you are very supple. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and there was and, only eight people in the room because often that people say that later, was there more later in that room? Or was it a always couple of years eight? later, it went to 10. It's, it's and a couple more, years right, after right. that, it was 12. And That's 12 thought, was terrible because yeah. it was five in the front, five in the back, and two in the middle. So if you were in the middle, people were kicking yeah. you from the front, jumping back, or in the back, jumping through. Those middle spots were terrible. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of years later, he built the house in Gokulam. And the no, limited leg class is an action important today. No. Never. Oh, that started I never did one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So a lot of people liked getting there for that 430 ship because that was the only time that Gurji would say the prayer with everyone. Otherwise you were on your hmm. own. But I was like, hmm. I do not need to be here at 430 in the morning. That was definitely never, <laughs> that was never my, my time. Um, and after about two weeks, they started adding the intermediate series. And, uh, you know, honestly, when I started practicing yoga, it was fun. I didn't realize that there was so much more to it. My body could do it. Again, I was young. I was strong. I was flexible. I loved it. Uh, but again, I didn't really get the whole like mind-body connection. I just hadn't really had, I hadn't gone that deep. And like a month into being in Mysore, I was getting that deep. And I started kind of feeling like, I don't know if I like this anymore. <laughs> like This isn't fun. You know, somebody was like, well, it, it's not just supposed to be fun. And I said, well, I don't really get that because I would leave there and some days I would be like really elated, happy. Things are great. Some days I'd leave there really sad, crying. 
some days I'd leave really mad. And I was like, what is like, I, I just didn't get it. And I remember somebody said to me, um, you need to read the yoga sutras. And I was like, well, what's that? And they were like, you know, the yoga sutras of Patanjali. I'm like, okay, I don't know what that is, but I want to be a good yogi. Like, do you have a copy? And somebody gave me a book and it was actually Desika Char's version. Um, and it was a tiny book. It was like the littlest book and super thin. I was like, no problem. Give me that book. And <laughs> I took it to the hotel. I'll never forget that night, you know, I'm in bed and I start reading it and like a couple pages and like I fall asleep and I was like, no, oh, I must be tired. And every time I tried to read that book on that trip, I fell asleep. And in my ignorance, I thought, well, it mustn't be a good version of the book, you know, course yeah and then anyway i mean i have a whole bunch of stories about that i ended up going and when i got back to the states and and getting other copies and i got a really thick one because i thought well maybe the thin one wasn't good and every single one of them put me to sleep finally when i had about eight yoga sutra books next to my bed i realized that it wasn't the books that it was me that i wasn't ready for the sutras and something that, you know, Guruji really used to kind of speak in sutras hmm. when I think back on it now, because one thing he was always famous for saying was, you know, do your practice and all is coming. And I thought, you know what? I'm not really ready for this. I'm going to put these books away and I'm just going to do my practice. And I did for years. And it wasn't until maybe another five years down the road when I was asked to do some videos for Gaia, Ashtanga yoga videos, that then they said, we want to interview you and we want you to talk about philosophy. And I was like, oh, OK, well, let me try to revisit that. But I had enough practice by that point that they actually started to make sense. So that was kind of a cool, it's kind mm. of a cool story. Yeah. Um, and I do have one other story that I really love to share about being in mm. Mysore um, one day. So like I told you, I was starting to get more emotional. Uh things were coming up. And um, I was actually there with my uh, ex-husband. Well, we were married for over 20 years, Eddie Modestini. And he had been an Iyengar yoga teacher when I met him. So, and then he was the one who had been teaching Ashtanga yoga at the, at the school. So we had met, he invited me to come. We ended up getting together on that trip to India. And Patabi Joyce knew that Eddie was an Iyengar yoga teacher and he loved it. So he was always whispering little things to him. Like he, he would whisper in his ear, like the medical benefits of each of the poses, stuff he never said to anyone hmm. because it was like, Ooh, I'm going to get this, you know, Iyengar person. And I think because I had shown up with him, uh, although he had been there before, uh, that he sort of maybe thought that I had some Iyengar background. I didn't have any at the time. And I remember though, because, you know, in my store, there wasn't a lot going on and I practiced mm -hmm. at six in the morning. So I would really try to stretch out my practice. I, I liked being in the room. There's not a lot of things to do the rest of the mm -hmm. day. You hang out at the pool. So literally I would do like 10 Surya Namaskar A's, 10 Surya Namaskar B's, and then start, you know, the practice. I, I, I've always had a really hard time sweating. <laughs> I'd be wearing sweaters and I wouldn't really start moving into the standing poses until I could feel some sweat starting. So anyway, one day uh, I was practicing and this is maybe two months into being in Mysore. And if you know anything about the Lakshmi Puram studio, the room was basically part of their house. So on the other side of the wall, there was a door going into their house, the kitchen, there was like a window into the kitchen 
and I'm in there practicing in the in the studio, and I can hear Gurji and Ama talking and maybe arguing or something. And and I remember he came walking in and he pushed the door open, and I was in um, I think it was like John Ushir Shasana C actually, and he looked at me and he was like, Nikki, why are you so slow? He's like, you. You, Iyengar student. And I remember I was like, like I've just felt my whole body start to vibrate. And I was like, oh, like at the moment, at the time, it felt like such an insult, which is really, again, just me. But I just, I lost it. I just, all of a sudden I, I couldn't take it. And I was, I could just tell I was about to start crying, like cathartically. And I remember I got up and I grabbed my mat and I ran upstairs because we used to do finishing poses upstairs because there wasn't enough room. So I'd go upstairs, unless you were in the last group. And I remember I got in Paschimottanasana and I was sobbing. Like it was loud too. And you know, it was not a big house. So I'm sure everybody could hear me. And you know, somebody came up to me and they were like, oh, he didn't mean that. I'm like, yes, he did. He's so mean. I'm not an Iyengar, you know, I'm not an Iyengar student. And anyway, and then, so I'm like catharting in Paschimottanasana. And then Eddie came up and he said, um, Gurji wants you to go downstairs and talk to him. And I was like, I'm not going down there. But of course I knew the only way out of the house was to go down the stairs and, and out the door. I was like, so, you know, it took me about 20 minutes to kind of gather myself. My face is all puffy. And finally I roll up my mat and I'm like, Oh God. And then I go to leave and I'm standing at the top of the stairs, starting to walk down and Gurji standing at the bottom of the stairs. And I took a couple steps towards him and he said, Nikki, why crying? And I said, oh, you were so mean to me. You called me an Iyengar student. And he said, Nikki, you're crying. I'm crying. You're smiling. I'm smiling. And I, of course, started crying more. And then he said, come. And I walked down the stairs and he said, come here. And we went into the room and he used to have this stool that he would sit on in the corner. And he said, pointed to the floor and he said, you sit. And I sat on the floor and he sat on the stool and he put his hand on my head and that was it. Like I, like there was some kind of Shakti pot that I got and that was it. I was like, this is my teacher. And every day for the next two months, cause I stayed for four months on that first trip, I would finish my practice and go downstairs and I would just sit for as long as I could. And he would just occasionally come by and put his hand on my head. And that's why I kept going back to Mysore. Because it wasn't, mm. you know, I actually left Mysore and my back hurt. And I ended up finding an Iyengar yoga teacher that Eddie knew. And she took one look at me and she was like, well, no wonder your back hurts. You're only bending in your lumbar spine. And I was like, well, what does that mean? So she taught me a lot about how to use my whole spine. And thank God I never had back pain again. But the the feeling, the energy. So I didn't go back for the for the poses or the technique or any of that. Although I did finish third series with him, uh, I went back for that for that love. Like it was really, and it it it, it was like he was my grandfather. It really was very. Um, mm. It was like a really, you know, pure thing. I did have to set my boundaries with him, um, but it was it was a really, yeah. I've never found that in a teacher since so but mm. it was yeah it was a it was an incredible experience actually i don't remember you um in the time that i was there so i assume you just stopped going when when Matabi joyce passed away is that right yes 
Honestly, when right. Patabi, I was there for the funeral, and we mm. were actually trying to get there. We knew he was sick, and we had kind of planned an emergency trip. And literally the morning of the day that we were heading to the airport to leave the States, he passed away. We found out, and we went anyway. And I'll never forget, like, we didn't even stop at the hotel. We went straight to the house in Gokulam, and Saraswati was like, you said you were coming. You know, he was, he, he knew you were coming and he was asking for you. Like, where, where, where have you been? I said, well, we were in the States. It takes two days to get here. Like we, we were trying to get here. We ended up, it was, it was kind of cool because when we got there, nobody was there, you know, because he had been ill and nobody was really there. And so we ended up staying for a few weeks. So we got like some really um, special time with, you know, Saraswati and Sharad and the family um, before like all the students started showing up. Uh, and to be honest with you, by that point, which was like 2009, mm. I think it was right. I mm. you know, was also practicing a lot of Iyengar yoga. I've been to Pune mm. to study with the Iyengars. Um, and, uh, like I love Sharat. I, I was in India in February and I went and visited him in, in Mysore. Like he feels like family to me. They're, they are family to me. Um, but when Guruji died for me, it was kind of a, a liberating thing because as much as I loved, uh, Guruji and I love Ashtanga yoga, it informs everything I teach. I'm not really dogmatic about mm. it. I, I teach, in fact, the name of my studio is the Maya Yoga Studio. So really what I call the, the yoga that I teach now, I call it Maya Yoga because it means illusion and you never know what it's going to be. And I prefer to teach the people that are in front of me. You know, I don't, right. every once in a yeah. while, like I'll bang out, you know, the series, but, um, I, how does that transpire then? What do, what, what do you teach if someone comes to your class? I mean, like, you know, how would, how like would for they example, expect to be taught? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, I, I like to say that, um, you know, I draw from both of those backgrounds and I like to really say that I teach in the lineage of Krishnamacharya because of course he was the teacher of both of those students, right. And, uh, Indra Devi and Desika Char. So for me, it's really important to teach who's in front of me. So my studio has all the Iyengar yoga props, right? Because I like mm. to use the props because really the original intention of the props is to give you access to the action of a pose. It's not to make the pose easier. If you know anything about who Mr. Iyengar was, uh, it's definitely was not about making anything easier. Mm. So for example, like in the last few years, because of all, you know, the COVID and all the stress response and, and nervous system agitation, I start people laying down and we do, uh, I'll call it, say, we'll take like two blocks and put the mentan and a blanket under your head. You put the block under your upper chest and you get still. So it's about opening your upper chest to facilitate deeper breathing and mm. to support your parasympathetic nervous system, which only happens when your body is totally still. And then mm. we'll sit up and we'll do some chanting. I really love the chanting. So we do various mantras, we do yoga sutras, and then we do, you know, we do some Vajrasana, some footwork, we do some focused downward dog, and then we usually move into Surya Namaskar A and B. We do a lot of those. I also teach a lot of uh, lunge work because people are very stiff in their front body from all the sitting and things that we do. 
And then it kind of depends on the day and the energy of the people. Some days I, I focus on backbend. Some days I focus on, you know, forward bend. Some days, you know, and always their standing poses. And a lot of the time I do the Ashtanga sequence of the standing poses. In fact, the way that my yoga evolved was from Ashtanga yoga here on Maui because we were teaching here. We started teaching mm. in 1998. That's when my daughter, my daughter's name is Maya. My oldest daughter's name is Maya. She'll be 25 this year. And uh, we didn't have a name for the studio. And then after she was born, I thought, well, you know, that's a good name. And we were teaching Ashtanga yoga because here, like I said, on Maui, there've been, there's been Ashtanga yoga for a very long time. Unfortunately, a lot of those people practicing in the kind of older ways with very little awareness of alignment, uh, they hurt themselves and then they mm. stop practicing yoga which is really sad. So I used to call them the Ashtanga yoga casualties, you know, and they started hearing about our studio, which is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we really are like in the middle of nowhere. It's on the North shore in the jungle. It was like a 10 minute drive down a dirt road. And, but people started here because Eddie had been an Iyengar yoga teacher. So he was, he's really like a yoga therapist. So people were like, started telling other people you can go and you're not going to get hurt. So people started coming and, um, you know, it, it was, it was nice because Eddie and I taught together for years. So I would keep the rhythm of the class moving like lead classes. And, um, he would sort of go around and be like the yoga whisperer and like helping people individually. So it was almost like a lead and a Mysore class together, mm. which was cool. And so we were teaching the series like six days a week and then, we started to, um, one of the days of the week, we were teaching a bit like Tim Miller used to teach. He used to teach a class on Thursdays and he would call it um, like Guru Day or Surya Namaskar C. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where he would, yeah. you know, start to link the standing mm, poses. Mm. So we started doing that. And then, uh, so it went from like six days a week of real traditional to five days and one day a little bit different to four days and two days a little bit different. And what mm. we started to do was teach Surya Namaskar A and B like 10 of each. And then we would do all the standing poses twice. And then we would focus often on backbends and the inversions, right? All the, you know, the headstand, shoulder stand, those sequences. So, mm. um, yeah, so it was really kind of organic over years. And like I said, honestly, when Patabi Joyce passed away, for me, it was it was kind of liberating because I know a lot of people just shifted to Sherat and I, I love Sherat dearly, uh, but he was never my teacher. Mm. And so I remember feeling sad for a number of years, like, oh, I, I miss having a teacher, right? There's something very sacred about that dynamic and that relationship. And, um, you know, I, I would go and I would see when Chirac comes to the States, I'll go take classes with him. Like I love him and I love his family, his wife, his kids. I mean, I've known them for a very long time. However, um, the whole scene, I, I didn't, for me, I couldn't just shift from Padami mm. Joyce to Chirac. I yeah. was like, okay, well now I'm, you know, kind of on my own, but I think I, there's I, a lot of people that, that feel similarly. And I yeah. think, you know, if you, you were kind of in that time period. It's pretty understandable as well. Um, but 
What about um, other teachers there? As you walked into a scene that was established in Maui, and I always wondered how how much interaction there was between, say, Nancy or, I mean, I, I imagine David Williams is probably always a bit out there, but maybe you might have had interaction with Nancy or Danny Paradise or, you know, is there any kind of sense of community? Oh, I love or, Danny. Uh, he he yeah. never lived on Maui, he had, and he's always been a real traveling teacher. Mm. He's home sometimes. Uh, Nancy, though, yeah, actually, we started coming. The first time I came to Maui was in 1992 because we met some people on that first trip in 91 who were from Maui. And they said, oh, why don't you come visit us? And so who's going to turn down a free place to stay on Maui? So the next summer we came and we st we would go and we practiced at Nancy's studio. And you know how the Ashtanga scene at least was. I don't know if it's still like that. But um we teachers were always leaving to go to Mysore to go teach and you, they would always need somebody to sub, right? So we started doing that a little bit with Nancy. We would come and teach a workshop or we would sub. And um, so that was that that was the introduction to Maui. But like David Williams, he wasn't really publicly teaching. He would teach at his house, but he lived in Hana, which was like a two hour drive. So that was that. And I know David... Um, Swenson would come and go, but now he has a house here, but back then he didn't. So yeah, there really wasn't, um, there, mm. there weren't a lot. Nancy, I like had the main scene, you know, and that happened to be on the North shore, which was rather convenient. And then we ended up buying property here in 95 and built a yoga studio. And, you know, we live a hundred percent. Well, I live off the grid. Yeah. So hmm. solar electricity, you know, we have a well, we have, yeah, it's totally off grid. The only, we actually got good internet right at the beginning of COVID, which was great. Lucky. They put in fiber yeah. optic cables. It was yeah. unbelievable. I had, you know, everybody had to pivot and teach online. So I had been in India and I came back to a pandemic and the best internet I had ever had. So kind of interesting. And a particular reason for getting you on the podcast, I wanted you to come on anyway, but today, obviously, in the light of the recent disaster in Maui, do you, yeah. I know you've been helping out there and doing some stuff um, to to, uh, to help out after the fires. Uh, do you want to speak a little bit about that and what's going on yeah. for people? Yeah, yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about what's happening on Maui. So it was uh, two weeks ago tomorrow was the mm. 8th of August. We had uh, horrific wildfires come through. There, there was a hurricane that was on its way here, so it was sending incredibly strong winds, winds in the 60 to 80 to 90 mile an hour range. And, you know, I live on the North Shore, which is the wet side. Lahaina, which is the town that was burned to the ground, is on the west side. And it's um, after years and years of, plantations and colonizations and things like that like the it it's a tinderbox like it's very very dry water's been diverted i mean there's so there's so many things that are wrong about the development that happened mm. on the west side and so it was unfortunately kind of like a perfect storm situation and the wind knocked down power lines which then sparked a fire and early in the day, the fire actually was contained by about one in the afternoon. They said that the fire was contained and we we're all like, okay. And then at about four 30 in the afternoon, it started up again and the wind like 80, 90 miles an hour. I mean, the, the fire was moving a mile a minute and the old town of Lahaina, 
literally, you know, Lahaina was the original uh, capital of the kingdom of Hawaii. It was also the um, whaling capital of the Pacific. And so the buildings are really old, you know, hmm. and wood. So it was like a, like the old town was really, it was, it was like a tinderbox. And I hmm. mean, it's so crazy. The entire town burned in like less than three hours. Devastating. So over 2000 homes and structures were um, burned. You know, right now they've identified 115 uh, people who have died. There's almost a thousand or about a thousand missing. You know, people literally, I mean, these souls have been burnt, you know, to mm. like ash. It's, it's devastating. Mm. So people had to leave. So it's been yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, the displacement of all these people, you know, and, mm. and so many of these people that were living in Lahaina town were, um, you know, old Hawaiian families, multi-generational families living on properties, a lot of immigrants, you know, there's a lot of Micronesians, a lot of Mexicans, a lot of Filipino families, and, you know, they're not, they're not wealthy people. You know, it's ironic hmm. that the, of course, you know, what burned the the most was people that really did not have anything to lose and hmm. they lost their homes, their jobs, their livelihoods. So for the last two weeks, I've been, you know, volunteering at shelters, uh, preparing hmm. meals, but it, and I actually taught a, a online yoga class yesterday that I was so blown away by. I raised $7,000 yesterday. Um, mm. for for the cause and, and the the amount of money and the outpouring that has uh, been coming into Maui we are so grateful and and just blown away I mean most of the world has a soft spot for Hawaii in their hearts and um, it it it's really made me feel good about humanity again you know because sometimes it's easy to feel down about humans and what we've done uh, but to see, the community rally, you know, also Maui, we're isolated. It's in the middle of the Pacific, even though there's a huge military base on Oahu that is not far away. They didn't show up for days. It was the community that came together and to see the outpouring of people showing up with donations, you know, food, clothing, medical stuff, bedding. I mean, it, it really is unbelievable. And I was, uh, the other day, uh, on Friday, I was uh, volunteering in Lahaina in, at a distribution hub, and there were some people from Red Cross and FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Organization, and they were telling us that they've never come to a disaster zone and seen a community already so mobilized and taking care of their own that they were blown away. They're like, usually we come in and it's a clean slate, like we do everything, and mm we've been blown away by how much the community rallied. And, you know, in, in Hawaii, family is a really important part of culture, right? And it's the Hawaiian word for family is ohana. So to, to really see people come together has been uh, nothing short of uh, awe-inspiring. It's, mm. been, it's been amazing. It seems to have always been a hotbed of yoga as well. Do you want to just briefly yeah. speak about the, the specialness of Hawaii? What What is it that attract, that is so special there that's attracted so many people you know, I, with spiritual leanings, say? Yeah, that it, well, mm. I mean, the, the, the original Hawaiian people were incredibly spiritual people, uh, very 
very in their hearts. They're very, uh, there's, it's a spiritual culture. It's a very important part and to be connected to the land. And for me, like when I look out the window here, living on the North shore, it reminds me of India. It does. It's hmm. the jungle. You know, it reminds me of being in mm. South India. So for me, it always had that feeling and the, you know, the, the heat, the warmth uh, has always attracted people. And honestly, um, again, you know, a lot of a lot of the original yogis back in the day, they were hippies. Right. And a lot of people sort of left the mainland to get away from, you know, the the squares or whatever people and came to Hawaii looking for a different way of life and really kind of forged it. And yoga, I don't know, it seems to go hand in hand. There's a lot of, there's a lot of spirituality here. It's a, there's something about the energy in this place that really contributes to practice and to, I don't know, to, to opening your mind. And it's also an interesting place. Like you have to be respectful of this culture, of this land if Hawaii doesn't like you, you're out. It really, it really feels that way. So I feel hmm. so blessed. My studio is on my property and I'm always offering prayers and gratitude for being welcome to the island. Both my children were born here. Um, and I, I feel so proud that this is my home and, hmm. and I feel like I've been welcomed. Really. Yeah. Well, to end that subject so there'll be uh links to donations below if anyone wants to donate that would be great um please yeah, i think yeah everyone is is thinking of you right now um and just to finish off the podcast nikki on a brighter note um i always say uh give me one guilty pleasure and one inspiration so a guilty pleasure and inspiration um a guilty can be anything. pleasure yeah, just don't say chocolate yeah. no i wouldn't say chocolate <laughs> what's a guilty pleasure well, I definitely coffee. Yeah, that's off. Yeah, that's no, off coffee now. is like yeah, it's a yeah. religion. No, it's not <laughs> coffee. Uh, a guilty pleasure, honestly, is that I still go to a lot of concerts. I still, I, I saw seven ah, dead shows this summer. <laughs> They're still playing. I, yeah, can you believe that? There's like a couple of the original members, and I actually was on the mainland seeing them in San Francisco and. Uh, LA and Washington state. So I still get out there and I still That's love going one. to concerts okay. and seeing, yeah. seeing music. Yeah. And inspiration, you know, just, just be your most authentic self. Uh, it's, it's so hard to be anything, but to have to wear too many hats. So I think the older I get, I realize that, uh, how important it is really to be yourself and, you know, not everybody's going to love you, but at least you'll be loving yourself, right? You gotta, you, you gotta be authentic i think it goes a really long way that's a great one as well well it's Thank been you. a pleasure nikki um very My nice pleasure. and flowing conversation and uh yeah let's hope we can raise some money um for for you there oh my God, um, we'd be and, so uh, grateful yeah right so uh well thanks again for coming on and uh yeah it's been a long time in the offing but i really enjoyed our time so thanks me nikki. too thank you thank you, thank you.